Welcome, friends. This is the Underground Writing Podcast for the week of February 11th, 2019. I'm Matt Mallion, Director of Underground Writing, a program offering creative writing workshops in at-risk community settings. And I'm Alvin Shim, producer for the Underground Writing Podcast. On our bi-weekly podcast, we read and discuss a piece of writing by an underground writing student and briefly update listeners about what's happening in the program as a whole. Because we're a creative writing program serving at-risk populations, we do not mention students by name. We hope you enjoy this edition of the podcast. Listeners, as you know, we work in places in which people have been speaking but not heard, thus resulting in voices forced underground. Today, we're going to hear from a student at our site in Skagit County Juvenile Detention. Today, I'll be reading I Belong Here. This poem originates from a prompt that we've been using uh, from a poem called I Belong There. And the poem is by, uh, if I can pronounce it right here, Mahmoud Darwish, Palestinian poet, a giant in the poetry world, and probably Palestine's um, most most famous well-known poet, uh, at least of the 20th century. And I'm going to read that. I'm going to read his poem first because I think it's important Uh, for an important reason, and I'll explain a little bit. Uh, This is I Belong There. I belong there. I belong there. I have many memories. I was born as everyone is born. I have a mother, a house with many windows, brothers, friends, and a prison cell with a chilly window. I have a wave snatched by seagulls, a panorama of my own. I have a saturated meadow, In the deep horizon of my word, I have a moon, a bird's sustenance, and an immortal olive tree. I have lived on the land long before swords turned man into prey. I belong there. When heaven mourns for her mother, I return heaven to her mother. And I cry so that a returning cloud might carry my tears. To break the rules, I have learned all the words needed for a trial by blood. I have learned and dismantled all the words in order to draw from them a single word. Home. So that's I Belong There by Mamad Darwish. And we, in the, in the uh, workshops that I've done in recent, uh, uh, over the past year or so, I've brought this poem in quite a bit, and we talk about what belonging means, uh, where we belong, places we belong, places we want to belong, this sort of thing. And then we have, a, we have the students write a prompt, and we say, why don't, why don't you write a poem that's similar in nature and call it I Belong There or I Belong or whatever you'd like. And we had a student at juvenile detention that wrote this piece that we want to highlight today, and he called it I Belong Here, uh, which is a different... Uh, kind of a different slant on things. Here's what he wrote. I belong here. I belong here. Why? For the people I hurt, for the things I did. I stare at the white bricks in my cell, feeling angry towards the world, but why? As I start to think, I calm down. Why? Why? 
because it is me who put myself here. That's why I say I belong here. I start to have memories of when I was free, all the good times, and I start to feel sad, but then I remember what I've done wrong and who I hurt. And I tell myself, I belong here. So I wanted to read the Darwish poem first because I think it's um, it's just a good example. And I was thinking about this this morning because I went to I went to a court session uh, where we had another juvenile youth situation, uh, pretty serious, and a sentencing was uh, was done, and this student will be serving uh, juvenile life for the situation. I came away from that session this morning thinking about our students and how they often, um, well, back up a little. As I was sitting in the court session and hearing the uh, charges against this uh, student, which I had not been aware of all the, all the charges that were being um, made, um, I found myself saddened to hear that and also just it was a reminder of how our system, how our society labels everyone, I guess, but in this, in this specific instance, labels uh, youth who are in trouble in one way or another, and how our students often come to believe that and how they start to label themselves. It's a powerful thing in a, in a negative way uh, because we, we, I think we live into the labels we place on ourselves or others. And as I heard the charges this morning, I began thinking about this poem, and, and I went back and looked up the Darwish poem, and I think we have an example in writing that kind of exemplifies what I'm saying. So you have the Darwish poem that I take. I, I take the Darwish poem as having a more positive trajectory, but then we give the prompt to the students, right? And we say, write, write a similar poem, and, and we don't give them a whole lot of parameters, but Name it something similar. I belong there. I belong here. Go from there. The student has done that, and they've immediately sort of turned in on themselves back to those labels that they've been told or that they're telling themselves. And so this student here, and maybe it is maybe it is true that there was a there was an action that had a consequence, and therefore they landed in juvenile detention. But that that repeating refrain that's in there, I belong here. I belong here. To me, it seems different than I did this and I'm here temporarily. There's almost this like, it's almost like the student is saying like part of my being or part of my reason for existing almost is to be here, uh, which to me is, is scary. That's one of the things that we, all of our teaching writers in underground writing, I think I feel like we're kind of kicking against that all the time in a way of like trying to get students to think beyond labels, beyond what maybe what they've been told about themselves or what they're telling themselves and to move them towards more positive thinking, not, not baseless positive thinking, not merely positive thinking, but to realize that they're more than the labels. They're more than the situation in which they find themselves. You know, there's, there's hope and that, that they are more. Um, they don't have to be 
pigeonholed or, or uh, labeled to one single thing. They can grow, they can change. That seems to imply that some of the labels have a basis in truth, which often is the case. However, many times they don't. They've just been abused or neglected or uh, shunned for any number of reasons. So those are the those are the things I came out of the court thinking about. I recalled this this piece of writing and and then revisited the Darwish poem. And I think it's a I don't know. It's just something I, I came out of the courtroom concerned about this facet in the lives of our students that we encounter and how we can how we can counteract that. Um, again, I feel all of us are privileged to even have some kind of voice that we can speak into this situation. Not everyone has that chance. So it's a, a sacred chance to speak into, into the lives of others in that way. It's a very vulnerable poem. It, it takes a lot of work for any individual to look at themselves objectively and take responsibility and ownership. And I often, I often wonder when we read work from juvenile detention, knowing Sean and all the work that his team is putting into, like they, they use, they see juvenile detention for youth as a last resort in society, in our community. And I often wonder in light of this poem where this student is locked away from his family and, and community and, and all the additional work that they surround that student with to, to give the opportunity for introspection. What about all the students that are almost in juvenile detention? And are they getting as much support to keep them from being in juvenile detention? We don't have an underground writing site for almost juvenile detention mm-hmm. kids. Right, right. Yeah, it's true. And, and I think, you know, I, I work also in our, our county jail, and I've heard a number of, you hear it more in the county jail than you do in, in the county juvenile detention, but uh, some of the folks in there will say, I'm glad I came in because I don't, I think I'd be dead mm-hmm. if I didn't. Yeah. Um, or I'd be out getting in more trouble. And here I feel like it was a, a moment of being saved so I could have some time to unwind or detox or think or just be quiet and be safe. Um, so I think some of the students that come into juvenile detention, typically they're not that coming from coming from that uh, stark or dramatic of a context, like I just said some of the jail folks were, however some of them are. Yeah, there could be people that aren't in juvenile detention, like you're saying, that are worse off, that are more at risk. They just don't happen to be in juvenile detention. So I think, and that's scary, quite frankly, because at least in juvenile detention, yeah, we have caring guards and staff. We have a system set up for restorative practices and educational opportunities. And, but even in a small community like ours, there's situations out there that, that youth do not have that. Mm -hmm. And, and like you're saying, it it is a last resort or it's seen as a last resort. We have truancy, the truancy board set up in the district. And these it's for kids that are um, missing school for a variety of reasons often by choice, um, and how we can uh, help them get back on track and back into school. And before the truancy board existed, they'd just go right to juvie. Right. So the, again, it's, it's the county, uh, the community saying, well, let's try to help them rather than just 
putting them there. Let's let's try to help them get back on track. And I served on that for one year. It was a good a, a good experience, good insight into the community. And one of our uh, uh, board members, Armando, still leads it here in the Mount Vernon School District. And so I think that's a good thing. And I think our community overall, in my experience, is trying to help uh, in the best ways that they or we can. But um, on the other side, the system is the system, mm -hmm. you know, and I was reminded of that too, sitting in the courtroom uh, this morning. And I guess the conflict in <laughs> one of the conflicts I have within myself is if the charges were accurate, they were fairly serious. Um, and there are natural consequences from that. And there should be an accounting for it. On the other side is, for example, juvenile life, which now in Washington state is until a person is 25. Is that a just sentence? Does what this student had happen or others in other situations justify a uh, juvenile life sentence? And I don't have those, I don't have the answers. You know, I don't have the answers. I have a lot of conflict within myself. And of course, I am a, I want to be and, and try to be a strong advocate on the student and person side of the equation. If you, if you set, you know, the judicial system on one side and the, and the person on the other side, then I'm, I'm always on the person's side. But there's that conflict there because there are, there are things that have happened, mm -hmm. right? And they're real things and other people have been affected and, and these sorts of, in these sorts of situations. Can you speak to the the student in court and his reaction? It was almost, um, and I've I've seen it a number of times. It was almost cliche. It was, and what I mean by that is, you know, the judge says, "Do you have anything to say?" No. Do you plead guilty? Yes. Are you guilty? Guilty. Hmm. Guilty. How do you plead to this? Guilty. It just you get the sense that that's what is expected. It's what the student has been told to to do mm -hmm. and it's probably what the student does indeed have to do right. to to get to get the sentence they want or the plea deal again this was more of a plea deal and i see in our system as a whole that plea deals are the sort of the new sentencing right there or mm -hmm. sort of the new trial because things are not really going to trial most of the time it's a plea deal with a threat of more consequences if one goes to trial Another irony or grace or putting a positive spin on things, however we want to say that, mm -hmm. this student, in talking with this student, the student talks about, well, if I do have juvenile life, I'm probably going to finish high school. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to do this and this and that. And I, I totally trust this student. Like, I think that's intended. And probably, if the student can stay out of trouble, probably will indeed happen. There's a good mind going there. Right. If this hadn't happened and, he, and the student was on the outs, that educational pursuit would not occur. This again just brings up the kind of the conflictual emotions. Like, I think it's so great that the student will go on and pursue education and he could even, you know, take some college classes or be well into a college degree by the time uh, the student's out. And so that's great. Mm -hmm. And it will be done amidst a juvenile life sentence which is not great, you know, so it's, um, it's a complex thing.
you know, I wish there was a single button we could push and mm-hmm. fix it. But it's, um, yeah, it's very, it's very complex. The more, the more I'm around it and the more I learn about it. Darwish at the end of his poem says, I have learned and dismantled all the words in order to draw from them a single word, home. To me, I hear different things in there like people being more important than poems and, and some of these situations more important than words, as important as words are, but in the end, we're, those will fade away mm-hmm. as we continue looking for home or, or as we are at home or at peace. What's been going on in the world of underground writing? Quite, uh, quite a bit, uh, still. So, uh, what no one ever tells you, as you know, listeners, is out. We want to give another shout out to Arts Washington. As we've mentioned before, our book is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission. Uh, you can check out their important work via their website, arts.wa.gov. Uh, thanks again to the great folks there that support our work. Uh, particularly and specifically Miguel and Hannah and the work of countless other artists and art organizations that they support across our state. We are almost out of the first print run of the books, which is great, great news. They've gone out to students and board members and teaching writers, book review sites and and these sorts of places. Um, Second printing will arrive this week, just in time or a few weeks ahead of time, which is just in time in in my opinion, for the book launch. Uh, the book launch will occur February 21st, 2019, from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Mount Vernon City Library. There will be light refreshments to follow, and our student writers will be available to sign purchase books. So we hope to see you there. Uh, a few weeks ago, we welcomed our seventh teaching writer, Lori Parker. We're excited for Lori to join us. She is a screenwriter, film, and music producer teacher and activist, and since 2016, she has led writing workshops for people in the incarcerated, homeless, undocumented, and foster youth communities. Lori has recently taught screenwriting at Pacific University's MFA writing program, at the Hugo House in Seattle, and at the Calabash Literary Foundation in Jamaica. She produced the PBS documentary Finding Home, a Foster Youth Story in 2018, and co-wrote and produced the film and music for Rodrigo Ray Rosa's documentary Prison of the Trees in 2015, as well as his feature film, What Sebastian Dreamt, both filmed in Guatemala. So we just want to welcome Lori. Uh, We hope you get to know her uh, in writings in the newsletter and when we get her on the podcast. uh, Welcome, Lori. As we mentioned before, the AWP conference is happening in Portland, Oregon, March 27th through 30th. And some of our teaching writers may be there. So drop by the Bellingham Review, where editor and teaching writer Suzanne Paola Antonetta will be stationed. And who knows, you may see some of the rest of our crew there as well. You can make a difference, but you have to make some noise. We have to stay together, united, together, we're fighting. This episode will be released on February 11th, 2019. Keep in mind that you can subscribe to our podcast and have it delivered directly to you via your preferred podcast outlet. Listeners, if you have a moment to spare, we'd be grateful if you'd email us some feedback, podcast at undergroundwriting.org, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's featured writing is from What No One Ever Tells You, Underground Writing's first anthology of student writing, released about five weeks ago. 
The Underground Writing Podcast is recorded and produced by Alvin Shim and Underground Writing. You can access it via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other podcast outlets, as well as on our website, where we include links of interest connected to items mentioned in each episode. The introductory music for this podcast is Cool Number no. 2 by Walt Hampton, as performed by the LaVenture Middle School Marimba Band here in Mount Vernon, Washington. And the music you hear at the conclusion of each episode is provided by Luis Lopez and the Migrant Leaders Club in the Mount Vernon School District. I'm Alvin Shim. And I'm Matt Malian. Thanks for listening. Elimination, deportation, racism, discrimination. How can you not say that we're free when our freedom's based on limitations? Dedication, perseverance, you know that there is hope. Hatred from the people.